The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Ludwig van Beethoven was an intensely religious man, born and died a Catholic, who, when he was writing his Missa Solemnis, did exhaustive research into the texts of the Latin Mass. His closest friends included a future cardinal. And yet, so far as we know, there is no record of Beethoven attending church in Vienna even once. Why? That's one of the questions addressed by my guest, Norman Lebrecht, in his wonderful new book, Why Beethoven, which looks at the composer's life through the lens of the music and also great performances of it. I hope you enjoy our conversation and a couple of musical illustrations that go with it. Norman, your book isn't just incredibly enlightening about Beethoven, the man, it tells us a tremendous amount about the people who perform him. And I think that's very, very interesting because, to state the obvious, he's not a composer who interprets himself, even though the scores are meticulously marked with instructions, such as the mysterious nature of inspiration, the overwhelming power of his music, and the tremendous variety and unpredictability of his scores, that... The performer, whether it's a conductor or a soloist or a chamber musician, is really involved in a sort of piece of exegesis, as it were, trying to interpret the master. If Mozart's music strikes us as miraculous, Mozart is a miracle worker, Beethoven is more of a prophet, it seems to me, receiving divine inspiration. And so I was very struck by a passage in which you talk about Emil Gillel's wonderful performance of Beethoven's Fourth Piano Concerto with Leopold Ludwig and the Philharmonia, which is, I think, 1957. And you say the greatest performance of the Fourth Piano Concerto ever laid down, and I'm not going to argue (laughs) about that because I listened intently to it, having read your book, and I heard what you heard. Midway through the central movement, you say, I'm unable to breathe for the tension he creates. This is Gillel's we're talking about. The space between each note is separated like chess pieces on a world championship board. How Gillel's achieves this illusion is a mystery unfathomable by science. Somehow, in Abbey Road, on the morning of 30th of April 1957, Emil Gillel's entered a zone no other musician had ever visited and made it his own. And I can hear exactly what you mean.
I'm awestruck by the notes and the spaces between them. And that passage in your book, more than anything else, brought home to me that not just Beethoven, but also the performer has to be, in a sense, a prophet or at least an authoritative interpreter of a man whose thoughts are difficult to interpret precisely because they are so subtle, so profound and so overwhelming. I made the decision in this book to approach Beethoven through the music. The biography is just not interesting. You can summarise the biography in one paragraph. I do. Beethoven led a very self-restricted life. He grew up in Bonn. He left Bonn in his late teens. He went to Vienna. He never left Vienna, except to go to spas that he was sent to for cures in the summer. This is a man who was so fixated with what he had to do in life that he excluded everything he didn't have to do. One of the ways that I approached him was not to ask what Beethoven did, but what Beethoven didn't do. Beethoven never saw the sea. He was never curious enough as a human being to dabble his toes in the waves because it's irrelevant to what he does. He never went to Italy. Italy was the Fonset Origo of music. No, can't be bothered. No. <laughs> he, he, um, uh, th there are various other things that Beethoven didn't do, which we can discuss at other points, but he is there and he is in the music. If, if we can't tell a narrative of biography, what we need to do is to look at the music as it evolves and to find the man within it, to find the Beethoven narrative actually between the notes. And, and this has been made much easier by two things. First of all, in the last decade, an awful lot of his hands-written scores have been digitised. So you cannot follow the hand on the page without having to, to catch a lung disease in some horrible little Viennese yeah, yeah. done that. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't have to do that anymore. And the other is, we have a century of recordings. And it boils down to choosing from between 15,000 recordings of 250 works. And obviously, you don't have to listen to all 15,000. There are probably only about 1,000 from which you need to select. Because these are the authorities. I mean, if you read every exegete on the Bible, 50 lives wouldn't suffice. But you only choose the main uh, explicators. And so pursuing Beethoven through the ways that he is interpreted, through the ways that he licensed people to interpret him, is a journey that I don't think has, has been undertaken before. And you mentioned Gilles And Gilles extraordinarily fascinating. I mean, a, a man of... Almost unknown, because he had to keep so much secret under the Soviet regime. A man of great character, although he always appeared to be timid and terrified by the Soviet state, and indeed by his brother-in-law, who was a KGB man, I found out that he had sufficient respect for Nikita Khrushchev, that when Khrushchev was toppled and sent to live in a dasha somewhere a long way from Moscow, Probably the only person in the cultural world who still visited him was Emil Gilles, which took courage. It was a statement of his own belief in, in the human spirit. So Gilles, tremendously important interpreter, but go beyond Gilles and look at the four great Russian interpreters of the Beethoven sonatas, all of whom were pupils of the same man, Heinrich Neuhaus in Moscow, who was himself a phenomenal Beethoven interpreter who can be heard on record. And all of them completely different. Exactly. And we're, talk and we're talking about Sjansar Ritter with Emil Gilles, Maria Udina, Maria, Maria Greenberg. Greenberg. And you say it's hard to believe that they're playing the same notes. Yeah. And, and, and what they're playing them from are probably corrupt Soviet scores printed on toilet paper. 
And, and yet each of them conceives a world of Beethoven that, it is, that is authentic Beethoven, and yet is different from the others. Well, one of the things that really struck me were your references to Maria Udina, who's not nearly as well-known as she should be, partly because the recording quality, let's say, badly needs remastering. Um, but it's shocking at times. She was a Jewish lady who converted to very intense <laughs> Russian orthodoxy mm -hmm. and who famously had the nerve to write to Stalin and say that she was praying for him, that God would forgive him for his sins. Didn't she? And she got away with it, because on his deathbed, Stalin actually asked to hear her performance of Mozart's D minor piano concerto. But Yudina describes her own playing as only an endless screaming sign of despair. And you single out her performance of the funeral march from Beethoven's A-flat sonata, Opus 26, isn't mm -hmm. it, I think? Mm -hmm. And I listened to it, and you're not kidding. It really is sepulchral. It is terrifying. wonder what Udina, a woman so fearless that she wrote to Stalin about his sins and got away with it, was trying to convey, and whether a performance in which the funeral march sounds completely different is equally valid, and why the gap between different interpretations of Beethoven can be so great. Not only so great, but so personal. I mean, yes, we talked of Gilles and the G major concerto, and, and uh, I don't like the word definitive, but for me, it just sounds so right. I can't imagine any other supplanting it, although I listen to many others and I appreciate many others. And with Yudina, I think probably on my deathbed, I'm going to have my finger on a button, ready to press the arietta of the Opus 111, the last piano sonata, to listen to as I go out. Because once she gets over the honky-tonk bit, the bit where Beethoven goes into totally non-European rhythms, and she delivers those practically as no one else can, she then takes you into an ethereal realm, which is where Beethoven himself is going, yes. knowing that it is his last sonata. He does know. And that is the realm of the unknown. And it's composed of simultaneous terraced trills. 
enormously difficult to perform, although every young pianist, because pianist technique is stupendous these days, every young pianist has a go at it, and I wish they'd stop, actually. Mm. It's as if every young pianist first recording is opus 111. But in the hands of the great interpreters, such as Udina and Schnabel, it is music that those last pages, the ethereal trills, in the end, we're all reduced to the same clichés, aren't we? Yeah, and we all stand in awe of the work and of what a human being has made of it. And, and uh, you know, you just want to hold your breath as Yudina plays because she's taking you somewhere else. And But it doesn't end with Yudina, it doesn't end with anyone. I did a, a Wigmore Hall presentation of the book with Alim Besenbaev, who was the winner of last year's Leeds International Piano Competition. And I asked him to play the Arietta from the Opus 111 and he hadn't played it in ages, so we had to relearn it. And it was wonderful. I mean, it wasn't Yudina, it was something else completely. It was a boy of 23 from Kazakhstan who understood this piece and who just went, right to the heart of it. And there was a silence at the end of his performance. The audience weren't breathing. That's what we want. I always think about that last piano sonata, Opus 111, which was his last piano sonata, because, not because Beethoven was just about to die, but Beethoven had decided to move on to the string quartet in order to, his final thoughts were going to be... He didn't necessarily think they were his final thoughts, but he decided that the, the next stage would be the string quartet. The most remarkable performance I ever heard, perhaps you won't like this because he's not one of your favourite pianists, but Alfred Brendel, after his retirement, in an illustrated talk at the Wigmore Hall, just decided to play the last few pages of Opus 111. And it was astonishing. We weren't expecting the great gift, as I see it, of hearing Alfred Brendel play after his retirement. It's, it's music. I remember talking to a music critic once and we agreed that after you've put this music on, the CD or whatever, you can't really listen to anything else. No, it, it, just that. I mean, you mentioned Brentel. I'm thinking of Barenboim when he did the 32 at the Festival Hall about a dozen years ago, and he ends on the Opus 111, and the hall erupts and everybody wants something else, and just something, an encore, even if it's just a repeat of the Arietta, and Barenboim comes on and off, on and off, flowers and whatever, chocolates, whatever they give you at the Festival Hall. And the last time he comes on, he just closes the lid of the piano and walks off. And that's, yeah, that is the end of it. We're sitting around the corner from Abbey Road Studios. If I had one wish of time travel, it would be to go back when Arthur Schnabel is in the studio recording the Opus 111. That would be extraordinary. Perhaps almost as extraordinary would be Barenboim recording the Beethoven piano sonatas with the Beatles in the next studio and at one point actually asking them if they can... If, if they can turn the noise down. And I speak of somebody who, by the way, has been asked to turn the music down by a member of the Chemical Brothers <laughs> and Hugh Cornwall of the Stranglers. Talking of Baron Boyd, I was very impressed, unlike the critics, I was very impressed by his last cycle yeah. of the Beethoven Piano Sonatas, which he set down in quarantine, which I felt had... The, the wisdom and the mellowness and the spontaneity that you would expect from somebody who'd been playing Beethoven all his life. And I compared it directly to earlier performances and I felt that there was a, there was an extra dimension there and I, it became one of my, it was like, I, I went out and bought the CDs, which is something I very yeah. rarely do these days. And it's very sad that he's announced his retirement through ill health. 
But he's still playing piano. I mean, he's still hoping to play piano, at any rate. He did with Martha yes. Argerich the other That's day, right. didn't he? That's right. Yes. So, uh, we'll just have One to of the things about the Norman Le book is it always tells you what the, what the illnesses people have and what they died of. <laughs> <laughs> Can I talk about Beethoven and spirituality? Because it's very, very difficult to listen to the late string quartets or to the miscellanies or to the last piano sonatas without thinking about the realm of the spiritual. And this poses a very difficult question, one over which people will argue until the end of time, I think, which is, what did Beethoven believe? That he believed in God is not in doubt. But the precise nature of his belief is actually quite difficult to piece together, isn't it? When I spoke of the things that Beethoven didn't do, um, he didn't do sex. He almost certainly never had intercourse in the whole of his life. Something else that he excluded. He didn't go to church. He never went to church. I've checked this with every possible Viennese authority. He's living in the capital of the Holy Roman Empire, where you go to church both because it's a social obligation, a civic obligation, practically a legal obligation. It's also where you get your commissions. It's, it's, it's a professional necessity. Beethoven never goes to church. And I said to one of the experts in Vienna, well, how's that possible? And he said, well, he was Beethoven. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, nobody else could have got away with it. This is a very interesting question, the question of Beethoven and Catholicism. He was a non-church girl. There's no but doubt about is, that whatsoever. But he is profoundly religious, profoundly spiritual, deeply aware of the existence of God in the world and in his life. And at the very end of his life, on the deathbed, at his deathbed, he's being attended by a doctor who was formerly a priest but got married. And the doctor said, I think it's probably time to attend to your obligations. And Beethoven said, call a priest. So he thanks the priest. So the last significant act of Beethoven's life is to receive a Catholic sacrament. Now, may I make make just a point about about the Missa Solemnis, which is the greater of Beethoven's two settings of the Mass. I think... think Truly unfathomable masterpiece. Mm. His greatest large-scale work, even greater than the Ninth Symphony. But elusive, because... Beethoven resists the temptation to write catchy tunes. There are some very startling effects, but much of the music is endlessly subtle and reminds me of the music of his third period, so-called, mm. the very subtle music mm. of his, his string quartets. And I think it contains the finest orchestral music Beethoven ever wrote, by the way, mm. in, you know, in the mm. interludes between the singing. I'm not going to argue. In writing that piece, Beethoven went to enormous trouble to research the text of the Mass, the sources, the musical styles of Polyphony, who was one of the first great composers, I think, to try and recapture in his writing some of the modes and the atmosphere of the flowering of 16th century Polyphony. So clearly he took the theological message of the Mass very seriously. And for a Catholic listening to the Messer Solemnis, one of the things that strikes you is the correspondence between the music and the actions of the priest. So at the epiclesis, the bringing down of the Holy Spirit, this is the moment at which Beethoven brings down, what is it, a flute and a solo violin representing the Holy Spirit. And what follows is possibly the most sublimely beautiful few minutes in the whole of Beethoven.
it's very hard to say that Beethoven turned his back on the church when you hear music like that. Not going to it and turning your back on something are different things, aren't they? They, they absolutely are. Schubert yeah. turned his back on the yeah. Catholic Church with a vengeance. Schubert yeah. loathed the Catholic yes. Church. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. No, no, he doesn't. No, no, he, he respects it as an institution, but it's not an institution of which he wishes to be part. And in writing the Mrs. Solemnis, he expresses a lot of that. I mean, his sources when he's writing, what is he reading in music? He's reading Handel and he's reading Bach. So he's taking, he's gone to two extra Catholic composers, two Protestant composers, and there are echoes of Messiah in the Mrs. Solemnis, and uh, there are certain elements of Bach as well. So he's making it a much more universal work within the traditional Roman Catholic framework. Now, the problem with the Mrs. Solemnis, the uniqueness of the Mrs. Solemnis is this. Beethoven never misses a commission. You want a piece from him by Thursday, he'll deliver it to you on Thursday. Piano piece won't be written. He'll improvise that for the performance. Um, there will be empty screeds on, 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 on most pages, but Beethoven always delivers to commission with one exception, Mrs. Solemnis. And the Mrs. Solemnis, he's not just late, he's three years late. There is something going on here. There is a struggle going on here in Beethoven that we don't see anywhere else in his composition. We don't see this kind of protracted wrestling with the work, with the possible exception with Fidelia, which he recognises as a failure and tries to redeem constantly from, from its own sins from its, and, and eventually gives up after five attempts. Mrs. Solemnis, he's writing it for a man that he considered to be his friend. Crown Prince Rudolf, who became Archbishop in Olomouc, was going to leave Vienna. And Beethoven sort of half had his eye on going with Rudolf to Olomouc as his master of music, and the offer never came. Promises him immediately, as soon as Rudolf is appointed, I will give you a mass for your convocation in nine months' time. Well, three years and nine months went by before he did. He was heartbroken that Rudolf left. Rudolf had been coming to his house practically every day and performing quite menial tasks for him. This is the emperor's brother, the emperor's younger, epileptic, probably gay brother, who was totally devoted to Beethoven, but needed a position of state and so became an archbishop and cardinal. And Beethoven is both heartbroken at his departure and really angry. He blames the Catholic Church for taking away one of the very, very few people, one of the fewer than half dozen people that he regarded as a close and intimate friend. And he can't finish the Mrs. Solemnis because until he is finished mourning for Rudolf. When it comes to performance, the first performance is given not in Olmutz, not in Vienna, in St. Petersburg. And Rudolf never gets to hear it. You talk about Beethoven's very few intimate friends. If I can just say mischievously, I'm not entirely surprised that Beethoven should be intimately friendly with the very highest layer of aristocracy because there was a vein of snobbery mm -hmm. in Beethoven. Mm -hmm. I think it's always funny. People sometimes talk about Ludwig von Beethoven. Actually, Beethoven was delighted when people made that mistake yeah. because he wanted nothing. He would have loved to have been a von rather than a man. But Beethoven, one of the reasons Beethoven had few intimate friends is that he drove people round the bend with his rages and his perfectionism, but also something that you focus on and even offer a possible diagnosis for, the squalor in which he lived. And this fascinated me because 
I've always been gripped by the phenomenon of people who are compulsive hoarders, often brilliant people for whom hoarding is a monomania, if you mm. like, who will put up with every conceivable discomfort in order to live in this complicated and ritualized way in which you never throw a single thing away and, and, and in which dirt and, and smell and things mm. like that are of no consequence. Mm. This seems to have been what Beethoven was suffering from. Something like that. It may have been a form of Asperger's. There is another uh, medical term which eludes me at the moment, which deals with this this hoarding aspect. He, there may have been an aspect of autism, there may have been an aspect of bipolarity. There are a number of modern scientific tools that we can apply to try to explain Beethoven's frame of mind, um, but they're limited. Ultimately, he's Beethoven. And the aim in all of these things is not to waste time, to keep the time wasters away. He doesn't have to live in squalor. He can afford much better premises, but he lives in squalor because he doesn't want to be pestered by visitors. One person who came to him wanting to offer him a commission saw that underneath the piano stool on which he was sitting at the piano composing was an unemptied chamber pot. Now, come on. Beethoven, you've got, you've got maids and servants who can empty your chamber pot. He kept it there because he wanted to keep people away. So it's, it's, a, self, it's a willing self-isolation. He doesn't want to be bothered while he's in his composing time. He has, he has rituals. He has habits. He gets up in the morning. First thing that he does, he makes his coffee. He buys the most expensive coffee in Vienna. I mean, none of your Nespresso or anything like that. He gets the best coffee from Italy and he grinds it himself and he makes his one cup for breakfast. Quite specific about that. And then he goes to the piano and starts composing whatever has come to him during the night. And so he, he lives this very orderly, very restricted life with very, very few visitors. He likes company in the evening. Um, even when he can hardly hear people, he'll still go out to a pub with a couple of people would go to a pub without anybody and sit at a table and wait for somebody to join him. He's not a hermit, but all of his waking hours he wants to dedicate to his purpose on earth, which is to be Beethoven. And is his purpose on earth something that can be boiled down to a message? Now, there yeah. are individual, yeah. there yeah. Are individual yeah. messages. There's, there's yeah. a message of universal brotherhood in yeah. the Ninth Symphony. Yeah. There are messages of triumph over suffering in, mm. in famously his wonderful song of thanksgiving for recovery from illness. There are a number of very, very inspiring messages, but do you think it can be boiled down to, if the prophet is speaking, what is he saying? Let me just go back to the, the previous... Um, issue of time wasting because there's this there are so many anecdotes about Beethoven and many of them are spurious but this one is actually true he had a complicated relationship with a man called Prince Karl Lichnowsky uh, who was initially a patron then Beethoven told him to sod off and after Lichnowsky had fallen from power he would come to Beethoven's house every day Beethoven would see him coming up the road and we could slot the door <laughs> I mean, this is one of the most powerful men in the land, a court chamberlain who'd been involved with the secret police. So you do this at a certain amount of personal risk. The prince would, go, would come and would sit on the step for a couple of hours and eventually would get up and go home. And after he'd been doing this for three or four days, Beethoven left the door open and said, what do you want? And the prince said, I just want you to say good morning to me. Beethoven said, good morning, goodbye. He had previously said to the prince after falling out with him, the prince had rebuked him for 
uh, an act of disrespect to his guests. Beethoven said, there are many princes in the world. There's only one Beethoven. And that little aphorism, that went viral in Vienna. Everybody heard of it within 24 hours. This is Beethoven, the composer, asserting a power that was not given to the most powerful men in the state. I am Beethoven. I do what I do. He yeah. is, in short, charismatic, in the sense that Max Weber understood the term. It's mm. only thanks to Max Weber that we use the word charisma at all. Yep. He rediscovered it, he redefined it for yep. us. But you know, for Weber, yep. who was writing a century later, charisma is the power of extraordinary individuals who possess a gift of such an order that they command authority in themselves. And this has a very ambiguous and awkward relationship with other sources of authority. And it seems to me that we can see that tension played out in Beethoven's life. He recognised other sources of authority. Sometimes he wanted to invoke them, so he certainly wanted, wanted, wanted their patronage. But mm. as you say, I am Beethoven. There is, you know, there are many princes, but there many is only one Beethoven. Beethoven. And that is, that is how somebody who believes that they, that they have charisma speaks about themselves. And he accepted the patronage only on his own terms. He was as, as wont to reject patronage as he was to accept it. So he redefined the nature of the relationship between music and money. The composer dictates, not the person with the money. And in terms of message, there is clearly an idea of equality beneath God, that all individuals are human beings and that they have a right to exist on the surface of this earth. When he came to the Ninth Symphony, he gave the premiere on a Friday night. And everybody said, Beethoven, you can't do that. It's Friday night. All the aristocracy, all the moneyed classes are out of town. They're on their estates. They're at their schlosses chasing boar and wenches. Who's going to buy the tickets? And Beethoven said, this one is for the people. And the people heard it, and which Beethoven didn't, of course, tragically. But, yeah. but, and there was an explosive reaction. There was a thunderous, titanic reaction yes. to the last movement of the Ninth Symphony. Yes. All men shall be brothers... And it's something that people heard, and it continues to resonate with them to the extent that every totalitarian regime has tried to tap into it. And, and there um, is Beethoven. Hijack stand. Beethoven. Yes, there is Beethoven standing on the stage, unable to hear the ovation. And one of the soloists just taps him on the arm, she's a teenager herself, taps him on the arm and points to the audience, and Beethoven realises that, yeah, he's achieved what he was looking for. So he's brought over that message. That is, that is the one. And the other is the essence of transmission, um, which, and the person who's put it best is, is a friend of mine who is a distinguished scientist and an ultra-Orthodox Jew living a quite closeted life within that community. And he, he plays Beethoven in the morning. I mean, he, he's a pianist, he plays Beethoven. I told him the title of the book, Why Beethoven? And he said, that's not a question, that's a statement. I said, what's your explanation of it? He said, well, it's obvious. He said, Beethoven, he's Moses. He's standing on the mountain receiving the message. And that's pretty close to it. It's also pretty close to how Beethoven sees himself. And it's pretty close to how I see him as well. I feel at the moment very let down by the Catholic Church, as I constantly remind <laughs> listeners of this podcast, but I don't ever feel let down by Beethoven. Discerning the spiritual message of Beethoven can be difficult, but deriving satisfaction 
and the calming effect of Beethoven never wears off. Do you find that? Oh, yes. I mean, I started writing the book just before COVID. And during the worst moments of lockdown, when we, you know, we were cut off from our loved ones and, and you're yearning for the people that you can't see and you can't hug. You know, I couldn't listen to Mahler because I never knew I would ever, if I would ever hear another Mahler symphony again in a concert hall. I couldn't listen to opera. But Beethoven seemed to have the answers. Beethoven, in his own isolation, in his own deafness, in his own inwardness, seemed to express something that I could relate to as one sat through that horrible hot spring when the sun beamed down with a summer-like force and you couldn't leave your balcony because you, you, might have, you might have got arrested. Beethoven seemed to know what the human heart needs and what the human mind needs. And you would listen to a passage of Beethoven. And it was not just calming, it was, it was healing. It was actively healing. <laughs> 